Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. You know, always there seems to be so much happening every single week. What's different though is so much of it impacts us directly. Obviously, the cost of living does. And speaking of cost of living, there's a lot of people, not everybody has a loan outstanding there. Not everybody has a mortgage that sort of is maturing in the next year or so. But for those people, I mean, they're watching a sharp increase with this latest interest rate increase. I'll talk with Mike Levy more about that. And I've got a real shocking stat about what's happened in the world of increases that impact you so directly when you talk about your cost of living. So that's coming up on the show. But so is Martin Straith. You know, he does the trend letter and the trend disruptors. I'm going to start with talking about one of the big disruptors. We talked about it, I I don't know if it was like three weeks ago in the show. I've been playing around with it. I'm talking about chat GPT. I mean, this thing is just unbelievable. You want to hear more, but I really encourage you to try it out for yourself. Really easy, by the way, so don't worry. Also, you know, get a lowdown on what he thinks happening, you know, in the marketplace. As I say, the list every week seems to be, you know, a long one with so much to talk about, but I'm really excited finally to be talking nuclear power. I'm doing it with Dr. Kiss, uh, Chris Kiefer about it. He's been one of the leading proponents of nuclear power. I want to dispel some of the myths that are out there, some of the opportunities. And I think one of the things that's been missed in Canada is the size of the opportunity for Canada's economy. I mean, Canada's a leading player in the nuclear energy space, you know, with the can-do reactors. But I'll get more to that with Dr. Chris Kiefer. Really looking forward to that. And I think you're going to enjoy it. But first, I think the evidence is overwhelming that debate over climate change leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, by the way, it was first called global cooling, then it morphed into global warming. Now it's climate change, but it's been anything but rational. I mean, emotions rule the day so often. And it's been none too intelligent either. I mean, given that so many policymakers seem to be taken by surprise that the sun doesn't shine at night or the wind doesn't blow every day. And that means you need backup power. And we don't have the battery technology yet, you know, for storage. You know, to borrow, when I look at that debate, I got to borrow from legendary talk show host Pat Burns. He says, I don't know whether to call that ignorant or stupid. But the religious fervor that's characterized a lot of the climate campaigners and the politicization of what, first and foremost, you know, should be a scientific discussion. Well, that hasn't helped. (laughs) On this show, I haven't bothered to debate whether climate change is real because, come on, obviously it does. The climate changes. I haven't debated the degree which man contributes to climate change because, as I said, eh, way too emotional, that debate. You know, instead, I focused on three aspects. Number one, I've asked for cost-benefit analysis when we propose actions. And you know what? Nobody wants to do one, certainly not in government. I mean, it's been totally rejected by politicians and some climate groups and reporters. And sadly, from my point of view, most in the media cover the issue, but no cost-benefit analysis guaranteed hundreds of billions were wasted, ineffectively spent thanks to the preoccupation rather with virtue signaling. You know, early on, I found out that saying the emperor has no clothes is never popular, especially in a country where in December 221, our commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development, Jerry Marco, after the study, found that Canada has, in quotes, become the worst performer of all, of all seven G7 nations since the landmark you know, Paris Agreement on Climate Change was adopted you know, in 2015. Worst, despite all our virtue signaling. And speaking, the emperor has no clothes. I focused on the practicality instead. You want renewables? You want electric vehicles? Well, come on. 
just tell me where the copper, nickel, lithium, rare earth minerals are coming from. You know, you can't do away with fossil fuels. I know they've tried without another grid ready to go. I mean, that's one been the huge problem. We, and we focused on the investment opportunities that come from that. You know, I'm proud that the World Outlook Conference three years ago, no one was doing this, but we were. The title was The Coming Commodity Boom. And a year later, we made a big emphasis on oil and gas and then uranium. Still doing that, by the way. But I'm going to add a fourth topic today that climate advocates have completely ignored. But you know what? Sorry, it guarantees very little meaningful progress will be made reducing global emissions without a major technological advancement. That's the key. It can happen, but we should be spending all our time looking at technology. But it also underlines how the no fossil fuel agenda borders on the farcical. You know, I mean, the argument is simple. The future of emissions and demand for energy is going to come from developing nations like China, like India. I mean, India is going to be the highest or the biggest world population in a couple of years. Their leaders are not going to say no to raising their citizens out of poverty and into the middle class to appease us in the West with our climate agenda. You know, right now, there's an estimated 840 million people in the world without electricity. 690 million people live in extreme poverty. That's under the broader scale of $1.90 per day. It's worse. If you want to look at India, for example, they got 400 million people living on less than 64 cents a day. Yeah, their middle class is growing, and with it, the use of energy, the need for energy. But they're not going to leave that 400 million living on 64 cents a day. No, that's what Prime Minister Modi has been telling people at the climate summits. But, you know, it's hard to imagine a group with their heads further up their butts than the cop crowd who continually ignores the reality of the majority of the world. That's why in Glasgow, India's Prime Minister Modi basically threw up his hand and says, no way we're signing on to this. It's why Ted Nordhaus, he's the executive director of the Breakthrough Institute, foreign, Affair, foreign policy magazine calls him a leading global thinker on energy, environment, climate, human development. And he said after Glasgow, in quotes, the real outcome of COP26 meeting is to further entrench the sad truth that the global poor are on their own, end of quote. You know, at the end of that COP26 meeting, November 221, 39 nations, including Canada, signed the Glasgow Agreement, which committed to end any support for fossil fuels in Africa at the end of last year. Come on, I don't remember a single member of the media in Canada asking about that obscene display of elitism, basically saying, you'll never enjoy the lifestyles we take for granted, making it even worse. You know what? Once the EU had their energy problems, you know, starting in the last year, they said, hey, we'll relent. We'll fund fossil fuel projects as long as the natural gas or oil is shipped to Europe. I mean, come on. Nigerian President Mohamedou Bahari stated in quotes, we need long-term partnership, not inconsistency and contradiction on green energy policy from the UK and the EU. It doesn't help their energy security, doesn't help Nigeria's economy, and it doesn't help the environment. It's a hypocrisy that must end. Well, all I'm saying is they're going to keep pushing. Their demand for energy is going to continue to rise out of the developing nations. Net zero ain't going to happen. And at this point, our climate leaders and supporters have offered nothing. Well, really, it's a choice between keeping huge proportion of the population in poverty, at times starving, 
at time a standard of living far below what we have in the West, but it's all to meet the West's climate goals. Hardly a surprise, not gonna happen. The climate crowd from Extinction Rebellion, Sierra Club, big name companies like BlackRock, to our political leaders, haven't been willing to make even the smallest concessions themselves. Come on, are you giving up your iPhone? How about your private jets? Anything, they don't wanna change their lifestyle and yet they're demanding that's what happens in the third world. The only hope is massive technological advancement, not giving up plastic straws, not gonna cut it. Or as finance minister and trustee of the World Economic Forum, our own Christia Freeland put it. Are you ready? She put this in an interview in the Financial Times. Canada represents something between 1.5-1.6% of total global emissions. And she stated in quotes, even if all Canadians ceased emitting carbon, we wouldn't move the dial. Well, she's right about that. The focus should be on technological advancements because without the third world, nothing's going to happen. Hey, by the way, I've got to remind you that we've got the World Outlook Conference. I'm sort of smile when I say that, like, as if you haven't done that, Mike. Yes, we have. <laughs> but, you know, the countdown's on. It's coming up February 3rd and 4th. I think it's going to be terrific. I'm looking forward to it. Maybe you've now got a chance to say, you know what? Hey, there's no NFL football playoffs. We can come to it. You know, it's a week before the Super Bowl. You got the touch football, whatever it's called, the Pro Bowl. No, you're not missing out on anything. Weather's going to be iffy, but we've got what isn't iffy is the caliber of the speakers we've got coming. I hope you take full advantage of it by going to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can get all the information also at Money Talks Tweets and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. You know what? It's like I'm working for you full time and putting up stuff that you don't see anywhere else. I hope you join me. I think this is an incredibly important topic. I mean, obviously, the world of energy has been front and center for the last year and a half. But the role of nuclear energy has also been in debate within the environmental movement itself uh, for a dozen years. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me Dr. Chris Kiefer. He's an emergency room physician, but he's also president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, he's, uh, by the way, the host of the podcast, of the Decouple podcast. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for finding time for us. I just think, as I said, essential subject to get. I, I just want people to have the facts. You know, I mean, they can have their own opinion. I believe that on everything we do here. But I mm -hmm. just see there are just so many misleading facts when it comes to and misleading statements when it comes to nuclear energy. I mean, it, it must be a lonely battle uphill when you first started, at least. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um, you're right. There's a lot to clear up. Um, and, you know, pushing back against anti-nuclear mythology is a challenge because um, their arguments are very much based on seeding fear, uncertainty, and doubt on appeals to emotion. Um, and we've got to fight back with facts. And that can be tricky, uh, but there's a way to do it. And I think um, we're doing a good job of it. And that's starting to really bear fruit. Um, I was going to yeah. say, yes, you've had results. And I'll get to those in a sec. But just to follow up, I mean, it's like we are all trapped in that Three Mile Island movie or that uh, Chernobyl, you know, and, uh, and uh, Fukushima too, of course. But things have changed since then. You know, I mean, a lot of this is like, it's like pretending cars hadn't changed or technology in other areas haven't changed uh, since those events. So, well, I mean, it's funny bringing up those events because they're often talked about, um, you know, in, in the public uh, 
media and public forums as you know catastrophes as disasters i mean three three mile island was a costly industrial accident the radiation dose the max dose to members of the public uh was no higher than a chest x-ray now i'm an emergency physician um radiation is a little bit more tangible to me it isn't invisible uh but i dose people every single shift in the emergency department and I have parents coming in begging me to do a CT scan on their toddler after they bump their head on the edge of the table, for instance. So there's a real kind of misperception there. Um, and obviously, there's an enormous benefits to radiation um, that you know I see in healthcare and that we are you know surrounded by around us uh, in modern society. Um, but it's useful to have those comparators to to put these these incidents. Um, into perspective. Well, what a great example, though. I mean, being somebody who just recently had a CT, you know what I mean? Like, you're right, we beg mm -hmm, for them mm -hmm. and, and we complain we can't get them fast enough. So that, that's no. a fascinating example. Uh, but it's also, you know, I mean, there's so many areas that I hear about, but your, your, your point that it's an emotional debate, I think, is a starting point. That, uh, but I, I mean, certainly in many other areas, we, we start with let's scare the hell out of people and see if we can control their behavior that way. But this has been just such a relentless stream. But I, I'm going to give a little more positive note, but I suspense there's, uh, suspect, especially thanks to what's going on in Europe with energy and the importance of energy, maybe some progress is getting made. Yeah, you know, we've been living a pretty easy decade. Um, between 2010 and 2020, every single source of primary energy dropped peak to trough by 90%. We're talking oil, gas, uranium, coal. It's been easy streets. And, you know, we had access to the cheapest credit in the history of credit. You know, insurance rates have been at historic lows. Um, you know, something changed. And it's not just the Russian invasion, which obviously sent a shockwave through Europe. Um, you know, as you know, this is a continent that um, is really priding itself on, on leading on climate change. They've certainly installed a lot of weather harvesting machines, uh, wind turbines and solar panels. Um, but the reality is, is that those assets are entirely dependent um, upon a resilient backup system. They've patted themselves on the back for shutting down some coal plants in places like the UK, uh, but they've substituted largely with gas. And when the uh, gas main was, was shut off by Putin's war, um, they've been thrown into a major crisis. And that's really rippled all around the world um, with skyrocketing energy costs. But I was in Europe um, before the Russian invasion back uh, for actually the climate conference in Scotland, um, <laughs> uh, in Glasgow in 2021. And even at that point, um, Europe was in the throes of a a weather emergency of a of a climate event. It wasn't a hurricane. It was actually a wind drought. Um, historic lows in terms of wind production all across Europe for that year. And before that Russian invasion, coal, for example, number one source of electricity generation in a place like Germany. Now I'm an Ontario boy, and right here in my backyard, we made burning coal illegal. And that's a hard thing to do, particularly if you're not just swapping gas for coal. Um, we did it in a carbon-free way. We did it with nuclear, which provided 90% of the energy to completely eliminate coal off of our grid. Um, so, you know, for these these big sort of existential questions around, around climate and energy, um, you know, there are answers, there are examples, but they're not being talked about. Um, and so, again, it's it's a it's a great opportunity to be able to chat with you and and hopefully clarify some things. If you could, and I mean, I'm I'm doing the the Barbara Walters here and, and asking you to sum up. But if there, if you could grab like three myths that come to mind for you when it comes to uh, you know using nuclear energy, what comes to mind? Well, I mean, 
we can just work our way through some of the objections. I, I'd like to do that, but I'd also like the opportunity to try and paint out a positive vision because, yes, absolutely. you know, as nuclear advocates, we often get painted into this hole of just constantly being on the defense. And there's a lot of great things to talk about. Um, one of the stories, though, that I think is most misunderstood, and you'll hear this all the time, we shouldn't be doing any more nuclear until we find a permanent solution to the issue of nuclear waste. Waste is held up as this kind of existential threat. Um, where nuclear waste should really be thought of as a strength of the technology. I mean, the miracle of fissioning of uranium, uranium atoms um, is that it has on the order of 2 million times more energy density than something like coal. That means you need 2 million times less fuel, and that means about 2 million times less waste that's produced. And so if you imagine a coal plant running around the clock, um, you know, the invisible CO2, which is actually a large volume is one thing, but the coal ash that, that piles up that needs to be disposed of. Um, with nuclear, you're able to create such a tiny volume of waste that you can pack it away in these steel and concrete containers. I've toured a number of facilities now um, at the Bruce Nuclear Station, the Darlington Nuclear Station, where, where these waste cans are. Um, you know, they're perfectly ordered. Um, you know, they fill a, a, a warehouse the size of about a Costco and they just sit there, right? And you, you look at one of these containers, right? It's probably about 14 feet high, you know, maybe eight feet wide, eight feet deep. And that, that's uh, the waste in one of those containers corresponds to about a month of power for the greater Toronto area, you know, an area of 6 million people. And you're producing so little waste that it can just sit right there. You know, not putting any um, CO2 emissions to the air, let alone air pollution, water pollution or anything. And there's this kind of paradox because on the one hand, nuclear waste is incredibly dangerous. If you, if you stood next to unshielded nuclear waste straight out of the reactor, you'd be dead in a matter of seconds, right? But there's this paradox. In modern society, we make dangerous things safe. And I'll take you on a little detour here. But if you think about aviation... Uh, most Canadians have had the good fortune to have been able to fly in an aircraft. You're up at 30,000 feet in a very complex piece of machinery, probably 10,000 mission critical moving parts. You're going something like 800 kilometers an hour, um, you know, 30,000 feet up. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. We've somehow made aviation incredibly safe. There's something like 4.5 billion passenger trips every single year. Um, and yet we average about 150 casualties per year, Right. This is objectively a very dangerous thing to be doing. We take it for granted, right? The storage of nuclear waste is orders of magnitude simpler, right? We have to put the waste in water for five to 10 years to let it cool down. In that time, 99% of the radioactivity is gone. And then we need to package it into these containers. Within 600 years, you could take a spent can do fuel bundle and hold it in your hands, right? And you've returned it to a level of radioactivity similar to the ore body from which it was taken over in Saskatchewan. So if you want to put that back in the ground, you've really closed the loop and you're putting something that's as radioactive as the ore that itself was mined back underground. Of course, there's other uses for the waste. You know, we only extract about 5% of the energy uh, from the uranium in our current generation of reactors. Um, there are operating reactors in Russia right now, which are called fast spectrum reactors that can fission the remaining 95% of the energy left over um, in what we call waste. And what I think is better referred to as, you know, very partially used spent nuclear fuel. So this is really an opportunity. Um, the, the issue of waste or of spent nuclear fuel is an opportunity. It should not be seen as, as a danger. Unfortunately, you know, the way that the industry responds to criticisms of waste very much plays into the hands of, you know, the 
misguided environmentalists that are fighting against nuclear energy. Um, and it just turns it into a larger and larger sort of bogeyman. But, you know, in summary, we've made a real mountain out of a mohill, and it's been a costly distraction from um, the really effective action that, again, we've taken in places like Ontario, where we have, you know, definitively put an end to coal burning, for instance, and have one of the world's lowest carbon grids. Well, one of the things I also noticed in the entire energy debate is we act as if it's it's on its own. Like you were giving a comparison between that and coal as if, oh, oil never has an accident. And I'm, and I'm saying mm-hmm. the other thing I should have said up front is that there is no recorded deaths from being exposed to nuclear waste, you know, they, they, in the storage, yeah. you know, they have people working in the storage. We've had no, you know, uh, yeah. negative death, but we act as if there's no other, uh, you know, fallout like, oh, nobody ever got hurt in oil. Nobody ever got hurt in coal. There's no emissions from any of those. You know, I just find it's, it's a comparative issue here. And the advantages, right. it seems to me, of nuclear are just uh, starting with the energy density that you alluded to, which made me think of this, is that, you know, it seems to be a, hand, a hands-down winner. Absolutely. And I mean, the comparisons we need to be making are with, you know, the other potentially scalable climate solutions, other low-carbon sources of energy. And that's a pretty limited basket, right? In places like Iceland, where you have um, tectonic plates, you know, close to the surface, um, you can uh, harness geothermal energy. Great, great source of energy, but very marginal. Um, Canada's, you know, really built its uh, electricity generation infrastructure largely with hydroelectricity. Um, You know, amazing engineering achievements, but we've we've tapped out the best rivers. Um, We've tapped out the best spots. Um, And you know, we have to make those kind of decisions, decisions which used to split the environmental community, by the way, between flooding massive valleys or doing something like nuclear, which has an absolutely tiny footprint from the mine right through to the power plant itself. But, you know, the commonly spoken about options are wind and solar, and these are held up um, as being, you know, as clean as the wind and the sun itself. And it's a nice story, but the reality is, um, is that these are also machines um, and they are produced from minerals and from chemical and industrial processes, which have an environmental environmental impact. And they're quite large, especially because those environmental impacts are happening out of our backyards, out of sight, out of mind. Um, the rare earth mineral production, um, largely happening in China, very poor environmental regulations, um, not to mention labor regulations. You know, and we talk a lot about a just transition for, for fossil fuel workers and for humanity in general. I mean, the, the solar supply chain is so contaminated by Uyghur forced labor. That's a um, ethnicity in China that's being, uh, you know, controlled in this kind of dystopian surveillance state and um, some stuff very reminiscent to some of Canada's shameful past in terms of Uyghur children being placed in essentially residential schools and uh, not being allowed to practice their culture, their language, that kind of stuff's going on. And because China dominates the solar supply chain so completely, 97% of solar wafers um, are produced in China, it's tinged by this. Now, this is just the production side, but in terms of the performance of wind and solar, um, these are intermittent sources. Like it's it's an obvious uh, an obvious fact. Um, not just that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine, but they often don't do those things, and they often don't do those things at the same time, which leaves gaping holes in electricity production. And you know, in addition to being a physician who works with equipment that needs to be reliably powered every second of every day, I'm also the father of a four year old who spent the first five weeks of his life in an incubator. I take reliability very seriously. We talk about heading into a world of, you know, electrify everything. 
Well, if that electricity isn't ultra reliable, a lot of people die when the lights go out. And so, you know, we have run experiments now um, in Germany, for instance, where they've spent uh, close to half a trillion dollars, mostly on a wind and solar geared uh, so-called energy transition. And as I mentioned, even before the Russian invasion, still critically dependent on coal as the number one source of electricity. So we've, we've seen what works. We've seen what hasn't worked. Um, the issue here is really, I think, one of, of communications where um, the nuclear success stories have been neglected. We really accidentally decarbonized with nuclear because we built most of it, you know, between the 70s and 90s when climate wasn't a concern. But wow, look at that. A place like France, for instance, um, you know, in the course of 15 years, uh, brought 54 nuclear reactors online and accidentally decarbonized their electricity system. I mean, these are extraordinary stories and they have extraordinary relevance to the concerns of today. Um, and so it, it takes, you know, voices like my own and a growing group of, of advocates around the world, I think, to, to bring these to the forefront and hopefully bring some sanity back to uh, the discourse, because you know, I think a lot of our politicians um, are are blind to this. And the other thing I'm seeing, but I'm being more hopeful. I mean, look at the success you had in Ontario in extending the life of, you know, uh, the Pickering nuclear plant. I mean, I'm just saying, I, I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, but there's, that's not the only success story. There was some success in California, but it's also, I'm looking at uh, South Korea saying, and Japan, I mean, speaking yeah. of Fukushima, look at Japan saying we're recommitting in this way, let alone India, let alone China. The list is yeah. a long one. I mean, I, I think the tide has, tur has turned, not as even turning, has turned. For sure, for sure. And, you know, part of that is public opinion, uh, but part of it is just physics. The challenge that we have with climate change is not just to produce lots of clean energy, it's to replace fossil fuel services, right? And again, that's why nuclear substituted very well for coal. It provides those same services of around the clock, reliable energy uh, production. And whenever fossil fuels become scarce or unavailable, people turn towards nuclear energy. These are the sort of small island nations without their own fossil fuel resources, places like Japan, for instance. There's a reason Japan, you know, was about almost 40% 40, 40 nuclear powered. It's because they ran out of their coal and they now import coal and gas. And that's what drives their whole uh, electricity grid and much of their economy. And so nuclear provides this very cheap fuel, uh, a ton of reliability and energy security. Think of South Korea, for instance. You know, functionally an island because of that, uh, you know, uh, demilitarized zone between north and south. Uh, again, um, not rich in fossil fuels. France as well. This is a country where the saying was, we do not have oil, but we have ideas. Um, you know, they built this massive nuclear fleet in the midst of the OPEC crisis when they were, you know, cut off from affordable Middle Eastern oil. Uh, it's the same story around the world. And so it's only natural as fossil fuel prices start to really um, skyrocket out of control that nuclear is very much back on the table. And again, particularly for um, Eastern European uh, neighbors of Russia who are, you know, this isn't just a game for them. This, and, and, you know, climate change is a noble aspiration. But, you know, again, having interacted quite a bit with politics and politicians, there's often more pragmatic drivers of their decision making. And I'm happy to talk more about the Pickering situation. But, you know, having a neighbor who can utterly control you via energy um, is a real motivation to get your house in order and, and, you know, build a future based on energy security. And we're seeing that even Ukraine right now is talking in the midst of this war about building four new nuclear reactors, um, again, to further um, achieve the, the kind of independence they require, um, because energy is, is the secret ingredient in everything.
And and just, you know, come back to Pickering, uh, you know, you're president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, can you just tell me what was the what was the obstacle because they were going to shut down the plant? So what mm-hmm. was the obstacle in the minds of the politicians you dealt with? What what were they what were you having to deal with and overcome? Right. Well, just a little bit of context to start. Um, you know, we run Kandu nuclear reactors here in Canada. That's a design that we came up with on our own um, to get around some of the limitations of, you know, not being able to enrich our own uranium and not having the heavy forging to build the big pressure vessels of, you know, the reactors that we see more commonplace around the world. It's an incredible design. Uh, it's really probably the safest uh, design out there. Um, there's been no significant incidents whatsoever regarding uh, with regard to a Kandu. Um, they're designed to have a refurbishment. Um, so you swap out components every 30 years. Um, you know, at least one refurbishment, probably more possible. Um, so that gives the plants, you know, a 60 to 80 year lifespan. So a number of those plants are up on that 30 to 40 year sort of midlife uh, uh, timeline where we can refurbish them and, and give them again another 30 or 40 years. We built or we commissioned 22 of these large candor nuclear reactors in 22 years. And that's given us 15% of the whole country's electricity supply, carbon free, you know, with a minimal impact and with a huge economic impact. Because again, this design being all Canadian means that when we spend a dollar on it, we don't send it off to China for, you know, a wind turbine or a solar panel. We don't send it to the States to buy, you know, their coal or natural gas. Um, it goes into good union jobs mostly um, and recycles in our communities, into our factories, into our economies. Um, so in any case, Pickering is is one of these these crown jewel stations. Um, eight large Kandu nuclear reactors. Um, six are currently operational, and the plan had been to shut them down. And why was that? Um, well, you know, the fracking revolution changed a lot of things. There was talk about a nuclear renaissance in the early two thousands, say two thousand five, two thousand six, and that was put to bed by historically low natural gas prices. Um, which really changed the economics of electricity generation in the U.S. and and really around the world. Natural gas actually, you know, wasn't thought of as being that that bad of a fossil fuel. It's got about half the carbon intensity of coal. It burns a lot cleaner. Even the mainstream environmental organizations were funded by natural gas. And in Ontario, for instance, um, they were very upset that we use nuclear instead of natural gas to phase out coal. Um, so those, those are really the big reasons why, why the Pickering refurbishment wasn't being looked into. The other was this idea that, well, you know, demand has not gone up as much as we anticipated. There was a great recession, obviously, of 2008, a lot of deindustrialization. Um, so those, those factors changed a lot um, in the interim period. We're now talking in Ontario about needing to double or triple our grid. Um, you know, with electrification, uh, with reshoring, you know, obviously this conflict with Russia has really shown us that, you know, we're maybe at the end of uh, a globalized uh, globalization narrative and needing to particularly reshore critical industries. Those all require energy. So bottom line, um, you know, my organization was really at the forefront of keeping the flame alive on fighting for refurbishment. We produced a, a 26-page policy report, um, got it into the hands of the premier and the energy minister uh, via some contacts in in labor. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a perfect storm. The, the conditions uh, arrived um, and the decision was revisited and luckily the right decision was made. And, you know, it, it is for a life extension and investigation of refurbishment. But, you know, my, my sources, you know, within industry, within labor, within government, um, 
are all pointed towards this being essentially a done deal. I think we can look forward to that nuclear plant continuing to power the greater Toronto area and avoid the the equivalent of six to eight million transatlantic flights worth of CO2 every single year. Um, let me just, uh, you know, I've kept you a little longer, but I, if you look out on the whole nuclear sphere and that we're seeing a lot of technological innovation going on right now, what excites you most? Is anything you saw, you read, and you went, oh my gosh. Listen, I mean, there, there's some really neat opportunities here. Um, nuclear's obviously proven itself as a very reliable source of electricity generation. Um, if we're talking again about replacing fossil fuel services, we have to be looking at process heat, um, which fossil fuels um, are, are delivering right now. Um, so there are some exciting, you know, novel reactor concepts that can deliver that. I'm a little bit of a traditionalist in the sense that um, we have a lot of work to do on the electrification side um, and that, you know, nuclear is hard. It really demands uh, a culture of excellence uh, from the workers, project managers, et cetera, but it also requires a cohesive national industrial policy. And, you know, we're on the eve of this nuclear renaissance, and I'm very worried that Canada is going to fumble an incredible advantage that we've had. Um, we've spent $26 billion on this uh, can refurbishment process, which, you know, again, maintains 15% of our national electricity supplies uh, for another 30 or 40 years. Sounds like a lot of money, but, you know, compared to our big wind and solar spend in Ontario, six zero sixty billion billion, very affordable. Now, that investment wasn't just in the infrastructure, it's in the human resources, critically. It's in the project managers, it's in the skilled trades, um, it's in all of the professionals and the supply chain, which is there, geared up, ready to build can-do nuclear. Um, so we'd be, frankly, quite foolish to fumble this baton. I think of it as a relay race. You know, we've refurbished these Canada reactors. We know them. They're operating better than they ever have. Um, we have the people and the factories teed up, ready to go. Um, it makes perfect sense for us to move into building some new Canada reactors ASAP. We know the demand is going to be there. Um, and so that's kind of the next phase after this you know, fight to save Pickering that my organization is working on is trying to encourage a cohesive national industrial policy, which can, again, harness the benefits of domestic nuclear energy of this very special can do design to be the backbone of our nuclear industry. Certainly, we need to be exploring these other avenues um, for process heat and, and other activities. Um, but that needs to build in a cohesive way um, out of uh, out of an industrial policy um, that can take advantage of, of the lead time that we have and the excellence that we have here in Canada. Well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I think the people in the natural gas industry might be nodding your head about the worry you have. We won't take advantage of a natural uh, opportunity that we have. Massive opportunity, though. I mean, energy is front mm -hmm. and center. Number one, you know, poster child for we just figured out we need it. <laughs> you know, some people have, yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and the yeah. opportunity is massive. What's, what's incredible to me, you've been living this. It's, what's fantastic that you as a citizen, as an emergency room doctor have taken up this cause. I know how much, you know, the amount of time it takes, the dedication, the passion it takes you and the team you work with. Uh, but it just seems it's sitting there right in front of us. If climate change is your issue, you think you'd be talking about stuff that has a smaller footprint, that has no carbon footprint, but I mean, uh, you know, energy density issues, all sorts of things that go on, but proven. The track record is out there. We're not having to guess. We're not 40 years ago and saying, gee, maybe this will happen. Uh, as I say, it's a message that has to get out there. And I, I hope I close my eyes in 10 years and 20 years well, I'll be dead in 20 years, but close my eyes in 10 years. And and really common sense has taken over because I think, and again, I'm not putting words in your mouth. The lack of common sense 
in energy policy throughout the Western world has been astounding. You know, and I, I did say it glibly earlier in the show, gee, the sun doesn't shine when it's dark out. You know, I mean, we're at that level. And, and that's mind boggling. The advantages of nuclear are there, track records there. I, I just congratulate you on the work that you've done and uh, making progress in the way you have and bringing that. And I so much appreciate you finding time for us. Oh, thank you very much. Good to be on. We'll be visiting again. Chris, I'm going to call you again. So just be <laughs> ready. Good. Okay. Sounds good. Dr. Chris Kiefer, uh, great stuff. President of the Canadians for Nuclear Energy. He's an emergency room uh, doctor, as I said, but he's also host of the Decouple podcast. So look that up. Dr. Chris Kiefer. Time now for the quote of the week. For years, well, let's make that decades, I've been asking a straightforward question, specifically who and what areas of concern are helped by a lack of economic growth? And the answer shouldn't be held hostage by some political ideology. Rather, I think the answer exposes the shortcomings of those ideologies. Now, I don't know whether it's the majority of the public leading the majority of the media or vice versa, but I've always found it both disappointing and amazing the lack of emphasis on the importance of economic growth, no matter if your issue is sustainable health care. How about alleviating poverty and homelessness, or just something like good roads and services, or your standard of living and that of your children? I'm going to go further and say, the fact that we don't answer that question costs us, more so our children in terms of their future standard of living. I guess I'm just amazed by it all, because I'm amazed by how few in the media and in the public reacted to things like the OECD forecast that the best case predicts Canada's per capita GDP growth is only going to be seven-tenths of a percent per annum for the decade we're in, 2020-30. Dead, by the way, dead last among advanced nations with that. And the worst performer actually going further between 2030 and 2060. I mean, how was that not the headline in the news? Other than because of ignorance on the part of the media. Because the implications are massive. You know what's ironic, though, is those are dismal projections. But the saving grace may well be the oil and gas industry, the most malign industry in the country. Although our refusal to supply natural gas to Germany and now Japan seems like we're determined to not take advantage of our most important resource. So to the quote of the week by the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute, William Robson, in quotes, protecting the environment was easier when we were richer. Providing opportunities to marginalized people was easier when there were more jobs. Holding our politicians and officials accountable was easier when they did less ruling by decree. Let me repeat that first part. Protecting the environment was easier when we were richer. Obviously, look at history. Providing uh, opportunities to marginalized people was easier when there were more jobs. I mean, as I say, I come right back and I know, as I say, I'm tiresome, been decades, but come on. Finally, give me an answer. Who specifically or what area of concerns benefits by the lack of economic growth? I'm pleased to welcome back to the show Martin Straith. He writes the trend letter. That's been out there over 20 years now. My gosh, 21st year, I guess, there. Looking at metals, looking at commodities, looking at bonds. But they also do, you know, the trend technical a trader. They do the uh, trend disruptors, which I love, by the way, because he's always talking about stuff that, uh, you know, is coming into the marketplace. And it, I find it very convenient or 
uh, timely when I read stuff. Uh, let me just bring Martin in. Martin, first of all, appreciate you taking time. And speaking of trend disruptors, you know, we did something on, uh, you know, chat uh, G. Well, you've got to get the letters right all the time. GPT uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I've really enjoyed using it. Oh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, um, our, our disruptor group, uh, Roger there, he, uh, he wrote a really nice little article on that that we, it's up on our website. That, uh, yeah, I, I think everybody's heard of it, um, but I don't think most people really understand the depth of what we're talking about here. Um, this is a serious game changer. Um, you know, we're talking a huge step for artificial intelligence. I mean, this is an application that is, has a remarkable ability to interact in conversational dialogue and producing really human-like uh, responses. Well, I, I've just been having fun. You know, literally, I mean, for me, I'm, you know, so much into research and data. So I've been able to check some numbers, do it instantly. Uh, when the mortgage rate change came out this past week, you know, on Wednesday, I used it. I mean, I have mortgage calculators, you know, I can do it, but it saved me so much time because I was getting my answer in three seconds. And it was sort of like, well, what if I move the amortization period to 20 years or to 30 years? What if that rate is five and three quarters or what if it's six? You know, and I had all these parameters that I kept just having fun with. But the incredible thing is you type it in and it seems like almost instantly you've got your answer. You know, it's like count one and, and there it is. So I'm just saying people are going to find all sorts of different uses. But the point you're making is far more important. than that is it's going to really change, change things. Well, it, it can do. I mean, you know, one of the one of the key things is, like I say, it, that it, it interacts in a very human like way and, and a conversational dialogue. And, and it write, its writing capability is unbelievable. I mean, this thing, it can write poems for you or essays. Uh, it can do coding, computer coding. Recipes, I mean, you name it. Um, you know, it's even passed NBA and medical licenses exams. So, you know, it, it's, it's quite an uh, evolution for sure. I mean, clearly this is a disruptive uh, piece of work and, and it's really why big business or big tech for sure is paying such close attention. I mean, Microsoft has invested $10 billion. Like they bought about a third of that chat GPT and they're planning to add this to their Office 365 suite. And you think about this, though, Mike, that, you know, when you go into Google, you know, right now you go to Google, you know, you type in your, your, your keywords and Google comes up and, and Google or Bing or any of the other search engines. And it gives you a list. And from that list, you kind of pick which one you think might be the most relevant. You click on it and then you hope that you can find the information you're looking for. So. Maybe you don't find it on the first link. Maybe you try the second and third. Maybe ultimately you find what you want, or maybe you don't. But with, with this, you're going you're gonna to key it in. And basically, Bing will now respond to your question with an answer directly. And that's the big, that's the big difference here. We're, we're no longer, you know, as a user, we're going to be so lazy. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of like, the, you know, you used to have a remote control for your TV, and then that's not good enough. And you had to use, you know, you had to use one of the, you know, um, Alexa or one of those other things. So this is the same kind of thing that this is this is going to go out there. It's going to find what you want and it's going to give you an instant answer to what your question was. So and again, the other one that's really interesting to me is like in email. So you're looking at Outlook. Well, this is this thing's going to go through your email and it's basically going to come up with responses for you. And you're going to be, as a user, you're going to basically become an editor. You're going to kind of either approve that response 
or you're going to edit it a little bit and then approve it. And I think ultimately it will know what your responses would be. And it's going to automatically, and you're going to get really lazy and you're just going to say, okay, yeah, that's, you know, go ahead, do all those ones. Uh, and what I really want to emphasize is uh, I want to encourage people to go give it a try. Uh, and it's free right now in this form, uh, you know, and it's just chat.openai.com, chat.openai.com. It's absolutely free. And I think it's a shame if people don't. I've just been encouraging people to go on, as you say, if you can type, <laughs> you know, you can use it. And I know you can even use voice command, but I'm just trying, trying to emphasize how straightforward it is. I mean, ask it for the best shortbread cookie recipe. You know, ask, yeah. you know, in my case, as I say, it's a lot of research stuff, but, uh, uh, but you, what you guys are looking at, at trend disruptors is the more serious or profound, let's say, shift it's going to cause. Well, that's it. You know, this is going to be incredibly disruptive. Now, there's also, an, there's, a, there's another piece of this, I think, that we really need to be aware of. You know, the whole ethics side of this is going to be a real challenge because, you know, chat GPT, it uses the internet as its source. And so, you know, disinformation is going to become a real challenge here. And that's from either side of the political side that anybody's on. So while it all sounds good and exciting, it really opens the question of where is AI taking us? Mm -hmm. And, you know, think about students right now. I mean, there's so many shortcuts for them to get quick answers. And then when we add in an app like ChatGPT, potentially it's going to remove most of the thinking involved required from the student. And I think that's kind of scary. You yeah. know, we've got these, um, you know, this app can write essays on any topic and it doesn't, but it doesn't know what the student's opinion is. And if the student didn't actually write the essay, does the student even have an opinion? Did they even think about it? So, you know, we're getting into that whole thing. I mean, some schools already tried to ban this. You know, we've got teachers now that are making students submit handwritten assignments to make sure that there's no cheating and that their handwritten assignment done in class. And even at Princeton University, they developed an app that can assess the likelihood that any text that it analyzes was created by another bot. Um, but you know, the, the new version is coming out, version four is coming out. And the killer is here is that these detection apps won't have a chance on this one because it has been trained on 500 times more data than the current version. Wow. It's just a wow. And, and again, that's why, you know, of course, that's what you're following. Of course, you do the trend letter, but you also do trend disruptors. And by the way, if you want any information on that, you can go to the trendletter.com, trendletter.com, uh, you know, and have a look. But OK, let's come back to the markets for a sec. Um, <laughs> well, that was the fun part. Yeah, but that's also a serious part of the markets. I mean, technological innovation and all that stuff. But let's but I'll give you an example, by the way, of what I've used it for. I've I've asked uh, chat. GPT, just give me the top 10 stocks of the last year. Give me the top 10 commodities. Give me the any commodity above 20% gain. You know, I mean, you can use it yeah. for all sorts of data sources and it's so quick. But let's talk about the markets. I mean, you're looking at it right now. We've had a uh, great start to the year. You know, the January barometer might be kicking in place here, you know, by the end of the week. So just give me your quick take when you look at the broad-based markets. Well, you know, we're, we're technical. So we look at charts. And our models look at a lot of indicators and they, they just identify trends. So, you know, we're not interested in what the talking heads are thinking the market should do or want the market to do. I mean, we've all got opinions, but we wait for the market to tell us if our opinion is valid. So right now, potential headwinds we've got, um, you know, we've got the leading economic indicator 
and we've got the inverted yield curve. Those are both suggesting we've got a recession coming. Um, we've got war. I mean, my God, um, you know, things are really heating up. I mean, we've got the West now providing tanks and potentially fighter jets to Ukraine. And we just last week, we had a Ukraine official saying major Russian cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg are going to be attacked. I mean, I mean, to me, we're talking, we're getting awfully close to a world war here. And, well, and, we many, and many people would think there is a world war going on. And it's funny, uh, you'll be with us at the World Outlook Conference, but so will Martin Armstrong, who's always uh, provocative, let's say, you know, incredible track record with his modeling, but I'm sort of bringing it up because he said all along, don't think this is about, uh, you know, the Donbass region, you know, in Ukraine. This is the bigger thing. This is the West versus uh, Russia. And the West is, uh, I always love that line he did. He says, the U.S. is prepared to fight for Ukraine down to the last Ukrainian. You know, <laughs> but that's a huge topic, as you say, that your technical analysis starts incorporating the impact of that. Yeah, well, well, that's just it. You know, this is a big, this last week where, you know, giving these tanks and, and, and fighter jets, that's not defensive. That's more offensive. And so... You know, if, if this is, if we start, you know, if the Ukraine starts attacking Russian cities, um, that's it. You know, that's yeah. full on NATO versus Russia. And then, you know, so it's pretty frightening. I mean, and then beyond that, we've got the China, Taiwan and the whole Middle East. So there's a ton of geopolitical issues. Now, it's not all bad right now, but I mean, we certainly need to be aware of those. On the positive side, just as you mentioned, you know, the, the S&P 500 has been moving up. You know, it just broke through the 200-day moving average, and it's been holding above that. We've got a technical, uh, it's called reverse head and shoulder pattern. Um, now, again, I can't show a chart here, but one thing, Mike, uh, what I'll do is uh, we post market notes on our site, and I'll throw up some of these charts I'll be talking about because, uh, you know, you, you have to be able to see it to understand it. But basically what, what you do is you draw a line at the bottom of uh, the head and shoulder, which is this is reverse. So it's basically at the top of the chart. And that's the neckline. And right now, today, when I just looked uh, about 10 minutes ago, it's just breaking that neckline. And if it can break that neckline and hold, well, that would be quite bullish. Now, we also have a technical short-term indicator that our models have been identifying. And it's, it's interesting. So when the VIX volatility index drops below 20, we typically see a temporary top. I just looked at it this morning. Uh, it's at 18.5. So that suggests that we're, you know, we're a little overbought here. So when we look at that, that suggests we should have a pullback soon. Now, here's another one that I, you know, we've, we've got, we post this chart. And again, I'll throw that one up there. But this is a chart that I, I don't think anybody else is talking about. And, and what it is, you know, all the noise right now is that the Fed's likely going to pause, then they're going to pivot, then they're going to cut. So it's everybody's just anxious, ready to buy, buy, buy. But what we've been showing our subscribers on this chart is that when the Fed is in one of these rate cycle hike, rate height cycles, like they are right now, the bottom of the market, so the time to, you know, the ultimate time to buy aligns when the Fed stops cutting rates, not when it stops raising them. So we're still in the, in, the, in the phase where they're raising rates. So, the, you know, the Fed hasn't even paused yet, let alone started cutting. And then if this, you know, if this pattern continues through, which it's done the last four times, the real time to buy, the, the, the ultimate super buying time would likely not be until they stop cutting the rate. So 
you know, that's just something for your listeners to have a have a listen to and be aware of. So, it, I mean, what that suggests is, and when we look at these charts, it shows that when the Fed starts to cut, the market typically goes down. So, you know, just, you know, don't be going, I wouldn't be backing up the truck just yet here, mm-hmm. so. Let me throw a couple of others because I don't want to run out of time. And I also just food for thought that one of the great things about being live again, I'm thrilled to be live with the Outlook Conference. People can come and have a visit with you, you know, and I no, don't look at me that way. No, people can come and have a visit with you. You'll find Martin incredibly accommodating, but it's a great opportunity for that. Uh, oh, it is, Mike. You know, you, you know, we're at your last one there and it's fabulous when you, know, you can actually sit and talk to people. We can show them some about our work. And they, you know, and they, and we can hear their questions. That's the part we love is we actually hear what they're concerned about or what they don't understand about the market. And then what we, you know, after we did your last one, it was great because we incorporated that, and so that we explain it in our next issue. Mm-hmm. But because if these people have this, these questions, a lot of other people do oh. too. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just fire a couple of them, you know, sort of the, the quick take, because um, you had just alluded to that. What are you seeing in the bond charts, you know, in the bond market? Choose any one you want, but, the, you know, what, what's that telling you at this point? Well, the Laysford bond, so, I mean, real high level, you know, we just end, ended a 40-year um, downtrend channel for yield. So, you know, yield's been dropping for last 40 years. I mean, think about that. And that's what the bond market typically does. It has these huge long runs and then they, then they end. And that, that down channel has now been broken. So it's, these yields have now been moving up. And that's something we've been talking about to our subscribers for a while that, you know, long-term bonds uh, to us, there's gonna be a sovereign debt crisis coming up. And so what you need to be aware of is you know, we've been telling our subscribers for a couple of years now, do not buy long-term government bonds. So what we've got right now is we've got an inverted yield curve. So we've got the short-term bond yields are higher than the longer term. You know, that tells us that, you know, the bond market is betting on that the Fed is going to lower rates soon, pause and then lower. But the interesting thing with that, just on a really shorter term, Mike, is that, you know, both the Bank of Canada and the Fed have said numerous times, they don't want to stop raising rates until they get the real rate being positive, meaning they want their central bank rate higher than inflation. So Canada, we just they just raised our uh, central rate to 4.5%, but our inflation rate is 6.3. So our real rate is negative 1.8. So they're not positive. So they have a gap there. So if they're true to their word, then the rates need to keep rising and or inflation has to drop until they get that positive real rate. And if we get that positive real rate, that's gonna be fantastic for savers because you know, you think of all the seniors for the last 12 years have gotten absolutely zero from their savings. You know, they, you know inflation, even though it was not even 2%, but it was, they weren't even able to get you know, 1%, 1%, half a percent on their savings. So, so they've had to go into the stock markets and do more risky investments. So hopefully we actually get back to some sort of normal case where you could actually put money into, you know, some some GICs or something like that, where people that don't want to be risking uh, their their life savings, they could actually get some some money. And so, you know, just as I said, we've been telling our guys do not buy long term bonds. And we continue to say that the the short term right now, we have been telling subscribers, you know, for some conservative investing. You know, short six months, one year, you're getting four and a quarter, five percent. 
that's a good little conservative investment. Yeah, I, I, and I happen to concur with all of what you've just said. I mean, I'm pr- very proud of the fact that it was the February 2020, three years ago, Outlook Conference. I said, you're going to get one more down move in in rates. And then from the third quarter of 220, you want to lock in. Now, you could have locked in any time for the next year too, but you needed, the, po- the point was lock in if you were a borrower and stay short term if you're a lender. And I, I'm with you. I'm still, I'm still in that camp. But your other point that we'll deal with at the Outlook a lot is the overlay isn't just Bank of Canada. It's a sovereign debt problem. Governments need money. And I, I, I sort of joke, and if you like a good interest rate, I can get you 83%. Right now, today, I can get you 83% in an Argentinian five-year bond. But people intuitively know they don't want any part of that. Or we can go to Ghana, get a 10-year at 20%. Problem is the currency fell 49% in the last 18 months. That's the overlay of, of lack of confidence, you know, uh, sovereign debt worries, all of that stuff. So I, I'm just saying I'm singing from the same songbook. Uh, let me just finish with one more thing, if you don't mind, uh, keeping you a minute more. But the gold market, because again, that'll be a subject. You'll be there. You can answer questions on that. We've had a nice move in gold, as, as Victor Dare has been chronicling for us. Um, but are you sensing on a shorter term uh, a little rest period here? Yeah, you know, gold's had a terrific run. Um, you know, back in November, we told subscribers that we were, we we're sensing, our, our, our models are sensing that gold was forming, but we hope to be a strong base foundation. And that turned out to be exactly what happened. So since that November low, gold's had a really nice run. So it's broken through all our series of resistance targets. So our models always target certain resistance levels. Every one of those, they, you know, so at 1730, uh, it held for a bit. It couldn't break through. Then it broke through. 1775, same thing. Couldn't get through, then broke through. 1875, and then recently 1910. So gold is up 19% from that November low. Um, you know, it's, I think I looked a little bit ago, it's uh, 1945. But you're right. Gold now, our models are signaling that gold is technically overbought here. So we should see a retreat soon, uh, initial support. So it's, you know, 1945, initial support, 1875. Uh, then we have strong support at 1780. And if we get back down to there, then that's probably going to be another really good buying uh, signal for you. So the other thing, uh, sorry. sorry, I was just going to say at the trend letter, I'm just talk, touching on these various things. It's published once a week, you know, but it covers all sorts of commodities, uh, bonds, of course, precious metals, as we just discussed, uh, you know, equities, but also currencies. I just want to make sure that I didn't sort of uh, give any indication there. All you have to do, by the way, check it out, is go to the trendletter.com, trendletter.com. And uh, also, I'd inf- encourage you to go uh, this weekend because uh, I've talked to Martin's people. Uh, he'll, he'll probably want to have a talk with them after this because I said, Money Talks guys need a discount. And they said, we won't disappoint you. Now, that might disappoint Martin, but tough luck. No, <laughs> but Martin's going to be with me at the World Outlook Conference. And uh, I invite you to have a chance. Go up, go to the booth, the trend letter and have a chat with him. In the meantime, Martin, thanks for finding time for us. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Mike. And uh, yeah, look forward to the, look forward to the conference. I'm going to bring Mike Levy in right now. Mike, the long anticipated and fully anticipated quarter point rate increase came on Wednesday. Uh, as I say, it wasn't a surprise there, but I think what people were focusing on that I thought Tiff Macklin pretty clearly said, we're at the pause point now. 
Oh, he absolutely did. And as you said, Mike, he perfectly telegraphed this was there was no surprises. And he's the master of no surprises. He just not shocking markets at all. They did raise the rate from, uh, you know, to four and a quarter to four and a half percent, 25 basis points. And uh, you know what? This could very well be, again, as you said, the last hike of this cycle. And they raised for three reasons, Mike, and they give those reasons. The lo- uh, stronger than expected growth at the end of last year, still a very tight labor market, and still elevated short-term inflation expectations. So all the reasons for doing it, quarter point, and again, he's making it clear that there's going to be a hiatus from this in the weeks and possibly months to come. Sorry, the smart ass in me, Mike, says when you said there were no surprises, uh-oh, inflation's not transitory. That was a bit of a surprise. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know, the other things to pick up on, I think, there is uh, – you know, he said very clearly that he expects basically zero growth in the next two to three quarters. You know, that that's a big drop down. So you're going to get higher unemployment. You know, uh, it has a lot of implications, as, as I think most of our listeners would appreciate. Certainly, if, if profitability is going down for companies, that's going to impact the stock market valuations. But yeah, I think the point is, he said he's looking for zero growth for the next two to three quor- uh, quarters. Yeah, he is, Mike. And um, looking, as you just said again, for weakness in the uh, in the employment stats. I'm going to try that again. He's looking for weakness in the employment stats and looking for further weakness in the housing market. Those are two things he put up there. The employment numbers have always been one of the most serious considerations because they're not falling off, either in Canada or the U.S. But further weakness in the housing market, that's to be expected with the cost of going out and getting a mortgage and people not earning the same or not getting the same spending power out of their money because of inflation. But uh, it's the first time that I've really seen him in the last few times pinpoint further weakness in the housing market. And I think that's something that we've got to take a look at. Yeah, and but he's also saying that that could be facilitated because unemployment will rise. He, he's saying, you know, that's got an impact on housing, obviously, if people have lost their job. And I guess, you know, he summed up, he started, I, I thought, was saying, you know, <laughs> excuse me, 2023 is not going to feel very good. Uh, it, it's not, Mike. And um, I, 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 I'm not looking for it to fall off a cliff. We've talked about this before. I think he's really setting up the fact that we're going to have a year that's not going to be one of our favorites. But again, setting up that it's not going to be 2008, 9, or 10 either. I think the bank is taking a much cleverer uh, a stance on this. And again, and I've repeated it and I'll continue to repeat it. No more sharp rises, but hold it here where it's having the desired effect over a longer period of time. So it's pain, but it's not a mortal wound. Yeah, but not a, not a surprise. I mean, come on, when we jump, no. uh, you know, the size of the interest rate increases, uh, you know, the prime rate, what, 6.7% now? you know, well more than doubled since March 1st last year, variable rate mortgages, you know, maybe 5.7. It depends, of course, of what your down payment credit history things, but it was 0.9, you know, March 1st. Home equity lines of credit, well over 7% now. Yeah, that is going to slow consumption, no doubt. Uh, But I thought the other thing, Mike, is back to something you were talking about a few weeks ago. And you said, you know, we were talking about the different sort of interpretations of the word pivot, you know, is it going to go down and that, I think he's made clear that he looks for rates to stay up in 2024, until 2024. Well, you know, just to quote him, I will not discuss 
rate cuts at this point. I think it couldn't be any clearer yeah. than that. And Mike, just one other thing before we go. U.S. GDP numbers came out late in the week. They uh, rose 2.9% in the final quarter of last year. That's a little more than forecast after a 3.2% gain in the third quarter. But the bottom line in the U.S. economy is that it's not falling off a cliff. It's losing stamina and risks contracting uh, early this year. And that should limit the Fed to just, and here it comes, two more small rate increases in the coming months. So again, they are slowing down. They're not going to go on and raise every month, but it's a diversion from what's happening in Canada. Macklin made it clear, one rate hike, and he's done, one and done. And the Fed governors, this came from U.S. Fed governors, to just two more small rate increases. So that's going to also cause a divergence in the value of the Canadian and U.S. dollars if the U.S. continues to raise rates and we don't. Uh, just last thing, you know, we've been talking about this, but I want to reemphasize. I find the word recession too broad. That's the debate right now. You come, you already got a recession in manufacturing, housing, technology. Obviously, look at the look at the layoffs and things like that. But you don't in other sectors. You know, energy jumps to mind in Canada right away. But but you know, there's others in this. You know, construction in the state seems just fine. You know, right now, industrial production seems just fine. So, yeah, I think we're going to continue to get this sort of mixed bag. And what you just said is what investors are concerned about. What's going to be the differential between U.S. and Canadian interest rates? Where are we going? And again, like the old cereals, and you're an old guy, Mike, so you'll remember this, to be continued. To be continued. TBC, Mike. Yeah, there you go. Michael Levy, he'll be with me at the World Outlook Conference, February 3rd and 4th. Drop in, meet him, get tickets at mikesmoneytalks.ca. That's next week. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. Well, poll after poll has told us that Canadians' biggest concern is their rising cost of living. I mean, inflation compounded by rising interest rates and taxation, I'm going to throw in there. But it's essential to understand that both inflation and the rising rates are a direct result of government policy. Although at times it seems like the majority of Canadians don't get that. My question is, why did so many of them end up in the media? Okay, pardon my sarcasm. But you have to admit, there is some irony to the fact that nothing impacts us more than those rising prices combined with higher interest rates, which came about because we were encouraged to borrow and spend. And the government did so much spending. Remember back in July of 2020, head of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklin, unequivocally stated, we are being unusually clear that interest rates are going to be low for a long time. Hmm, not so long. This past week saw the eighth increase since March 1st. Not surprising, though, there seems to be a lot of confusion when it comes to what inflation number means. So allow me just to take just a moment here. Do not confuse inflation numbers with the price you pay for things. Inflation measures the rate of increase for a basket of goods and services, not the price of them. So you can actually get falling inflation, but at the same time, prices can be at all-time highs because inflation, once again, is the rate of increase. And now that the prices are compounding, this is the point I want to make, prices in 2022 average 6.8%. That's the inflation rate. So this year's inflation numbers on top of that. University of Calgary economist Jack Mintz gives some great examples of the impact of that, what's happening to our personal finances in the National Post. When I talk about inflation, I'm always focusing on the things that you can't avoid spending money on, food, shelter, and transportation, which includes gasoline. 
I mean, that's nearly two-thirds of a consumer's spending. Now, I bet everyone has noticed the rise in food prices, but they're up 16% in the last two years. Shelter costs are up 13% in the last two years, and they're going to go higher through 2023. I mean, I know not everyone owns a home, but for those that do with a mortgage, I mean, that cost of the shelter is going to go way higher because the cost of mortgages has gone up so significantly. But transportation costs are up 17%. So overall, average consumer prices are up 11.6% in two years. Now, what about the impact on you, the consumer? Well, in December, average weekly wages for an individual were $1,175. So 11.6% inflation over two years means we're spending an extra $136 per week for the same stuff that we got two years ago. Here's the thing, though. That's $6,864 more per year. Wow. And the point I continue to hammer home, and I'm awfully lonely in this, you always got to think in terms of after tax. So, it's not just you had to come up with $6,864. No, you had to earn about $8,800 first, pay the income tax, then you got that much left over for the same stuff you bought two years ago. What's amazing is how many people in power are completely oblivious, oblivious to the hardship. That's a direct result of that massive pandemic spending with the majority of it going to people who did not suffer financially, while at the same time, the Bank of Canada manipulated interest rates to record lows. And that's what we're unraveling right now. But there were supply shortages. Come on, what else would we have expected other than inflation? And what else would we have expected than a reversal from the 5,000-year lows in interest rates? That's what we're living today. And I'll tell you, it's a heck of a hardship for an increasing number of Canadians. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in right now because there is so much to talk about, but I will start with the interest rate story. I mean, it wasn't a surprise as I was chatting with Michael Levy earlier on in the show, but Ozzy, just give me the sort of the lowdown. What did that do, that quarter point increase do to sort of the array of rates we're looking at? Well, first thing, all the major banks instantly raised their prime rates by a quarter percent to 6.7%. Wow. That is kind of, kind of a number. And since that number usually determines what you pay on your five-year mortgage, take a look at if you had an insured variable mortgage, which used to be the cheapest because you used to get a prime minus 1%. Well, that is now 5.7%. We're talking about a variable mortgage. Yikes, you know. And then if you're looking at the regular insured mortgage, you can get it as low as 4.79%. They might even buy the odd one, go below that. But it depends on your credit rating. If you just had your TB repossessed, no, (laughs) you don't qualify for the best rate. So anyways, maybe the three-year rate at 4.9% might be good value. And what you got to remember, if you think the rates are going to be down three years from now, then be careful to sign up for a five-year rate because the interest rate differential penalties are huge. You know, and we do have, as I said with Michael, Tiff Macklin sort of saying, you know, this is a stall period at the very least. They're projecting some lower rates. I mean, it's a tough environment, though, because there's so many variables and people should understand that. And uh, yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not been easy. Uh, And I'll come back to something else in a minute with the World Outlook Conference, but I want to go somewhere else because obviously that's made housing more expensive. You know, I just did a shocking stat with, uh, you know, Jack Mintz talking about the two-year rise in the ownership of shelter. And that didn't include mortgage rates. That's sort of like maintenance and uh, property taxes, that kind of stuff, you know, jumping, I think he said 17% over two years. 
But there's another thing here I want to get to because it's been a real bugaboo of mine because I don't like politicians standing up and saying, you know what, I really care about affordable housing. And then they turn around and you look at things like, hey, how long does it take to get uh, a new development approved, my new house approved. I mean, I hear complaints about that all the time. And I know the Canadian Home Builders Association just put out a new survey. Yeah, in a 2022 survey, and they, they sort of measure the development processes, the approval process, and, and all of those kind of things on, on a pro forma basis. And it took 21 cities in Canada. And guess what? Edmonton was number one out of 21 cities, Calgary number three. And even Regina, Saskatoon, and Winnipeg are all in the top 10 for the speed of approvals and lower costs for development permits. Well, obviously, that, I mean, really, let's give a pat on the back then uh, to the city council in Edmonton. I, uh, you know, I'm not talking about other issues, but on this issue, at least they're trying to walk the walk when getting things, because it's that delay that costs a lot of money. People don't seem to appreciate it. It's not just supply isn't coming to the market. It's costing, and it's getting passed on to consumers. Yeah, no question. Actually, Edmonton had sort of a combined ranking of firsts in all three categories of approval timeline, government charges and planning features. But of course, good old Vancouver locked in at number 12. You know, so yeah. we were kind of, and, and as you pointed out, what the ranking means in money is quite substantially uh, different city to city, in particular, the higher the dishonorable ranking is like 12 plus the higher you actually costs you, right? Well, let, let's break that down for people because we're not talking like $10,000 here. You know, at times it could be much, much higher, like, like really significantly. So what do we know about that? Well, if you have a low rise building, like a five to six story building, the average cost of government charges levied by municipal governments was $62,000 per unit. That's the average. Toronto, on the other hand, at the high end of that, with per unit government charges are 189,000, so triple the average <laughs> well, that you have. It's just mind-boggling. Well, the other thing is, of course, it means that I'm going to buy an apartment and I got to tack on 189,000. That's to begin with, by the way. This isn't the yeah. whole charge of government, but we'll just leave it at that for a sec. Right there, it's a, it's 189,000. What about it? I mean, I, you know, I remember reading a couple of point, uh, reports going back a couple of years talking about you know, high-rise condos in Vancouver. I mean, it was another big triple-digit number. Well, yeah, interesting enough. But again, across the country, it's 41000 per unit. Vancouver has the winning bid at 125000 for a new high-rise condo apartment. That's 125000 And, Michael, to just show you the difference, you take Edmonton, the, the low-rise for a for low-rise condo, the prices Edmonton charges are $29,000 versus Toronto's $189,000. And for a high-rise, Vancouver charges $125,000 in Edmonton, $6,000. It is astounding. And I hope people are astounded. And, and uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Ozzy, but I'm saying... I want you the next time you hear some politician standing up other than in Edmonton. No, but I mean, the yeah. municipal council there is, yeah. is doing a job. Uh, Calgary also is doing a pretty good job. But other, you know, and you're in Vancouver, don't listen to that crap. You're in Toronto, don't listen to that crap. And, and the other thing, sorry, Ozzy, I want to backtrack for a second and say, this does not include things like in British Columbia, you get a property purchase tax. So not only did they tack 125 grand on average to a high-rise apartment, whatever the total cost is, now we got to go property purchase tax, and that can add tens of thousands more. But in the building process, too, 
I mean, you're going to pay GST and PST on building materials. Now, yeah. obviously, again, not PST in, in Alberta, but across the country, you're seeing that certainly in Ontario. I'm just saying, you know, you, you can't afford to buy an apartment with the government. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, yeah. the government's killing you. And, and yet I find I don't like people made a fool of. And way too often the government makes uh, politicians make a fool of individuals. You know, they get out and they protest. We want affordable housing. And they don't understand that the very people are saying I'm with you are the ones who are killing you. Yeah. And it's it's it is uh, amazing that the city that has the lowest rates also has no property transfer tax. Yeah. And no, I mean, it's <laughs> I'm moving. OK, you've, you've convinced me, Ozzy. I'm moving. Uh, let me just hey, before you go, I was looking at something you did at the World Outlook Conference last year. And I'm going to give you a big pat on the back on this, babe, because it was a slide. I got, hey, don't worry. I got the evidence. I got the slide itself, Ozzy. So no running, no hiding. But think about this. We're talking about the first week of February. And you said, and the slide says it this way, the high of the market is in place. Okay, I'm going to give you another one. Uh, Your big uh, tip was for people, get in the market, but get pre-approved so you can lock in your interest rate. So uh, you better sit down now because I'm going to hurt your back because I'm patting it pretty hard. <laughs> but, but do you feel like what have you done for me net lately now? Because you're coming to the World Outlook Conference in, uh, you know, about a week's time, February 3rd and 4th. Uh, you know, I mean, you got to match that performance. It's going to be pretty tough. I think it is. But on the other hand, you know, we're talking, you know, half the world is talking boom. The other half is going to talk bust. And I'm going to lift the cobwebs of everybody's mind and take a look at what we believe is going to happen in the future. And that may very well surprise people. But I also have some specific little towns that I like, you know, a town where a single family home you can get for 389,000 or condos galore under $100,000. It's not all negatives. But enough about Inuvik. No, <laughs> you'll, you'll give us some geography there. Yeah. So that'll be good. But also you'll yeah. touch on that mortgage thing again. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, reiterate and what kind of things people should consider. Yeah. You know, it's always good. I mean, obviously interest rates are the key determinant for many people. Uh, obviously prices too. That'll be good. I look forward to it myself. But I thought that was a pretty good trick of mine to pull out a slide that you did last year. Luckily, <laughs> it's good news. <laughs> well, it's all good news. And just remember, too, when you talk about news and memories, you know, I remember that Richard Lewis said, when you're in love, it's the most glorious two and a half days of your life. (laughs) Oh, gosh, you like to get me in trouble. Ozzy Jurek, ozbuzz.ca. More importantly, live at the World Outlook Conference, February 3rd and 4th. Join us there. It's time to go live to the trading desk. I got Victor Adair here. You can find him at victoradair.ca, but you can also find him at the World Outlook Conference next week. I think you should take advantage of that. Hey, Vic, let me start with a like out of left field question, and that is: Is it my imagination that after the huge volatility the market's been sort of dealing with over the last couple of years, it doesn't seem to be near as fearful right now? Well, it certainly isn't. Uh, if I look at the option volatility metrics on the S&P, for instance, they're at a two-year low. What that tells me, there's no stress in the market. Mm-hmm. Now, so far this year, you know, the S&P is up maybe 15% from the, the, the lows. Uh, we're still down 15% from last year's all-time level. 
But really, in the last couple of months, maybe more than that, the market's gone broadly sideways. I mean, if you could call, if we look at the Dow, that it'll be up a thousand or down a thousand the next week, if you could call that broadly sideways. But yeah, the, the market doesn't seem to be fearful here. I mean, there are things to worry about in the world, but you know, we've maybe just got used to that. Uh, and let me come to a couple of those uh, uh, sidelights there. Uh, one is the U.S. dollar. Of course, you've been chronicling this. And I mean, the, you know, sort of the peaks. We talked about it. You said you were looking for uh, the market to retract from that. We're talking about those October, September peaks. You know, British pound, 37-year low. You go into the yen, 32-year low. You said at the time that you were looking for sort of a, a topping action and then into the down, you know, a correction to those huge moves. Where do you feel? What do you feel about that now? I feel now, Mike, that the, um, the U.S. dollar had run really hot uh, last year up to that 20-year high it made in September. I think, uh, in fact, I know it wasn't because I went and checked this. It was the biggest, fastest rally we've seen in the U.S. dollar index since 1984. So I think you could argue that the U.S. dollar got overbid at the top. Now, remember, that's at the end of September. And at that point in time, people looking ahead to what's going to happen in Europe this winter, it was a bleak picture. So, you know, and the you know British pound looked like, like the Bank of England had to rush in at the last moment and, and save the pension funds, blah, blah, blah. So things got really bad. So, yeah, we've had the U.S. dollar back up about 12% or so from those highs. Uh, I'd say a couple of reasons there. One is Europe didn't have a horrible winter, as expected. But there's also been a shift in terms of the expectations from central banks. Last year, the Fed was by far and away the most aggressive. Now it seems as though they're passing the baton, as it were, to the ECB. Now, I mean, I, I shake my head about that, but maybe I've just been euro negative for so long. I can't imagine, you know, it's going to be a, a, a lovely handover. But as it is, the markets have been negative on the U.S. dollar. I've, I am looking here for that to end. But part of that negativity, and I talked about this in my blog last week, I call it the, the anti-dollar trade. You know, gold was going up, the euro was going up, the yen was going up, and also stock markets around the world which had lagged the American market for the last 10 years, we're now suddenly catching a bid. Another way to play the dollar going down. Of course, as I talked to Michael Levy earlier, interest rates, big part of the story this past week. But one thing to make sure people are aware of, uh, you know, we've got more interest rate news coming up this week. You know, Federal Reserve, uh, we've got the European Central Bank. I mean, I had a couple of comments this week from members of the European Central Bank saying we're going uh, half a percent point And that's the way it is. Bank of England, similar. So the interest rate story isn't over, despite what uh, Tiff Macklin may say, things are calming down a little bit. Yes, your Bank of Canada sort of would we bump the rate and now it's now we're going to wait. And I can understand that. You know, the market's talking in terms of we had the fastest rise in interest rates in the states that we've had in years. And now the lagged effect, the consequences of what they did last year should start showing up. But right now it's it's almost as though, you know, uh, what's the old thing about the three bears, not too hot or not too cold? You know, the market's was worried about the shift from inflation uh, to a recession. Obviously, inflation and inflation expectations are falling. And I guess we're, we're at that point where, yeah, they, the central banks are going to back away to see whether or not what they did last year you know, is going to kill the goose. Well, and again, 
let's remind people, I'm always looking at these sort of broad, longer-term trends, and Victor is a trader looking for opportunities either side, up or down. Um, so I just look at, the, you know, Europe. You mentioned this, so you're so Euroskeptic, but uh, nothing's changed in Europe. They have an energy problem. They just got warm weather. You know, that's all that happened to them. They got their warm weather, and that's great. You know, obviously save save them, but we got, you know, there's another year. We're in another year. Next winter comes to all of that kind of stuff. I also look at the sovereign debt problems coming out of Europe. They haven't solved that. I think the whole construction of the euro, they haven't solved that. So on a longer term basis, I'm sort of looking for some trends to reassert themselves. And the one thing that just jumps out, Vic, they're going to raise rates, they say another half percent. I'm just thinking the losses in the bond market, because, you know, what was it? Six years of basically negative yields, I just, you know, whatever that length of time, everyone who got a bond for about nine years has to wait to maturity to break even minus inflation. The losses are just astronomical there. Well, and in terms of bonds, there's uh, a tsunami of bonds coming. Just uh, from the U.S., the U.K., the Bank of Japan, and the Eurozone, we're looking at $6 trillion in new paper this year. Uh, if you go, want to go to the corporate side, another trillion there. I mean, somebody's got to buy that. And, you know, there are folks out there like David Rosenberg who thinks that inflation will probably be negative this year and we'll see the best year in a long time in the bond market. And David's, you know, immensely well-educated and experienced and all that. And, you know, he may well be right. Uh, I think there's just these different views on the market as to what could be happening on the, on the inflation front. And that's key because that's the backbone of why the central banks are doing what they're doing. And right now, what the central banks do or don't do is the most important force in the financial markets. I have full confidence we'll misinterpret that when it happens, because my thing is, of course, inflation is going to go down. You know, think about this. We're going to get to the month of May. We're going to be comparing May 223 to May 222 gas prices, you know, and they're not going to be higher unless we have some sort of accident coming up. They're still going to be high, but I don't, you know, I'm not going to be surprised if the inflation rate on my gasoline, is it? Is this the year it goes above $2.40 in Vancouver or $5.50 in California? We are seeing a move in diesel right now, but I'm just saying the, compare, the, the inflation numbers will be misleading. They'll be lower because they're comparing it to a much higher base level, as I said in my shocking stat earlier today. Yeah. And this is a classic case of be careful of keeping your time frame in sync with yeah. your analysis. I mean, I can see inflation softening in the next little while, but I think we've got a, we've had a secular change here. And, and part of that's going to be demographics. Part of that is going to be debt financing. You know, we're not going to go back to balancing federal government budgets and that sort of thing. There's going to be money out there. And I think the key thing here is wages have been lagging. So people are going to try to get paid more. And I don't think that's going to go away. Yeah, so many factors hitting us. That's why we do a conference, Vic. That's why I'm asking you to come and so thrilled you are going to be there on the panel too. Also introducing a couple of speakers, but you'll be around, you know, uh, to be able to answer questions individually for people. I look forward to seeing you in person. Mike, I'm really looking forward to the WOC this year. I mean, we've had to do it virtually the last couple of years, and I just think it's going to be a lot more fun to have everybody in the room and meet everybody. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So all you have to do, by the way, is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca to get your ticket. I hope you do. Looking forward to it. Vic, have a great week. Thanks, Mike. 
Time now for this week's Goofy Award, and it is a beauty. Now, I usually don't get into politics like of a local congressional district. This time it's Long Island. But you know what? This story is too incredible, maybe too depressing, maybe too laughable to ignore. Especially, I started to read details of the outrageous story of George Santos, first-time winner of his congressional seat under the Republican banner, in a district, though, that regularly votes Democrat. I mean, Joe Biden won the district by 8% in 2020. In a nutshell, I started to see these stories. Uh, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. I heard Bill Maher talk about it. And a, a ton on social media. And the more I heard, more I read, I became more shocked. Especially because he won the election. Now, I don't know if I can do justice here to what I call the great fabricator. But let me give it a try. With a, just a sampling, not the whole thing, a sampling of the lies he told on the way to the election. I think maybe they could be divided into a couple things. One is he's trying to appeal to those people who love a good victim story. You know, then he has this massively embellished resume and work history trying to appeal to another type of voter. So let me go. He claims to have had a brain tumor. He claims to be the first person hospitalized for COVID. Keep in mind, this is all BS. He said his mother was in her office in the South Tower on 9-11. At times, he's actually said she was killed in the attack. Other times, she barely escaped with her life. Unfortunately, she was actually in Rio de Janeiro and hadn't even been to the state since 1999. And I'm just getting started here. I'm not even going to go into the fact that he started a GoFundMe account for a homeless veteran's ailing therapy dog, raised $3,000, and then he took it. As the Associated Press reports, he referred to himself, I can only say with a straight face, he referred to himself as a proud American Jew, probably thinking that in that district, maybe it plays well with some voters. Well, despite the fact that he, along with his parents, were actually raised Catholic in Brazil. Well, when he was called out on it, he backtracked and said, well, he wasn't actually a Jew, but he was Jew-ish, you know, sort of overlooking the fact that on Twitter he had stated, in quotes, he's a conservative Roman Catholic. You know what? I'm not even close to being done, so stay with me. It gets even better. Two weeks before the election, he divorced his wife, who was a woman, and stated that he was gay, another point claiming he was very much gay. Not sure what that meant, by the way, but obviously hoping that would appeal to another side of voters. He went even further, and so far at one point, he claimed he was half black. Well, that's quite a picture, by the way, half black, Jewish, gay, brain tumor survivor. I mean, I guess that does cover a big chunk of voters. Maybe that's what they want. But there were more lies, like he ran a charity shelter for stray cats, claimed to have neutered over 3,000 cats. I'm not sure he th who he thought would respond to that. Washington Post went through the lies he told about his education, work background. He said he attended the prestigious Horace Mann Prep School, got an MBA at New York University obtained degrees in finance and economic at Baruch College, where he said he graduated in the top 1%. Didn't go to any of those places. On the campaign website, he stated he began working at Citicorp, as a Citigroup rather, as an associate and quickly advanced to become an associate asset manager in real estate division. No, he never did. He claimed to have worked for Goldman Sachs. Oh, didn't. Normally, I'd say you can't make this stuff up, but obviously he did. All of it and more. The point is, he got elected. He was appealing to voters on across the political spectrum. I mean, wasn't anyone paying attention? Well, likely not. 
I mean, did any Democrat voters notice he tweeted, Democrats are ruining America, said the 2020 election was stolen? And was that the January 6th invasion of the Capitol buildings? How about Republican voters? Did they notice his desperate attempt at victimhood? Obviously not, and that's the real story. I mean, the only questions were raised by a local newspaper, and that obviously didn't stop him from being elected. Instead, it seems like he's the poster child for tribal politics. The heck with policy. I'm just voting for my tribal brother. Well, Lord help us. That's all the time we have for the show this week. Hey, a reminder, though, of course, as I've done all show, but it is February 3rd and 4th. I'm not sure what you're waiting for. This lineup of speakers certainly deserves your attention. I think you're going to really enjoy it, too. So I hope you join us. All you have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. Get your tickets. Uh, It's going to be absolutely fabulous, I, I promise. I mean, I'm so looking forward to hearing these speakers, and there's so much to talk about, obviously. Uh, so join us, mikesmoneytalks.ca. And in the meantime, I'm not sure why people don't join us on Money Talks Tweets and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. I'm doing all this research for free. It's like I'm working for you. And you get all this information you're not seeing in the mainstream media that I think should help inform your opinions, whatever you choose them to be. But more information, the better. In the meantime, go out and have a terrific week. I hope I see you at the World Outlook Conference. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.